The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Lord, we thank you for the confidence we can have that forever you preserve your word. The testimony that we see before us is the, the preservation of the natural creation, the keeping of its order, the, the surety the sun will rise, and in that also give testimony to you. But those are all um, demonstrations of your faithfulness. And so we can have all the more perfect confidence that you will keep your word and that you will forever keep your word. And so we, we give thanks to you for that. We give thanks to you also, even as this uh, section of the, the psalm uh, concludes that uh, your word is inexhaustible, that whereas there are a limit to other perfections or and completions of, of these uh, natural things that we experience and understand from this world and, and your creation at large, your word is inexhaustible. And so we, we thank you for that. We thank you for the high privilege of engaging it. We, we do so consistently, weekly, daily. Um, it, it has opportunity to, to be uh, part of any moment of our, our natural lives in our present context. We can quickly access our Bibles. We can quickly um, access uh, uh, devices that can summon it up quickly. We can uh, see it on shirts and posters and even in conversation and books. And so we thank you for the, the, the rich access we have, and we, we ask that you would help us to um, not fail to appreciate that which is so readily accessible, but to cherish it and to, to recognize that it is your word. It's powerful and effective, and it accomplishes even things that uh, are often unseen, and we only recognize their impact sometimes with time. And so we thank you for that, and we thank you that you've opened our eyes to see these things clearly. Um, it's not inevitable. There's a lot of uh, people that, because as uh, Jude writes, they're, they're worldly-minded, not necessarily um, perverse in their thinking in every regard, but they just lack the capacity to see and understand that which you've chosen to make plain to those who have the Spirit of God and to those whose eyes have been opened. And so we thank you, Lord, that you have made your word plain to your people. We thank you that as we labor at understanding it, you yield even more clarity as we uh, hear it taught, you yield more clarity as we speak to one another. These things are made all the more apparent, and so we, we give thanks to you. And Lord, we want to um, steward your word well even now, this morning. Um, there's, a, there's a discipline that is underway when we open it. It's not something mystical. It's not even something inevitable. And so we ask, Lord, would you please um, help us to steward these times of teaching and these times of exhortation and instruction, um, mine and Frank's and others, and, and the declaring and the reading and the expounding, the, the, the drawing out, and everybody as we, we think and, and see it more clearly and understand you better, not just always chasing after, well, how can this um, um, order my life if, by way of the next step and one foot in front of the other? There is a value to that, but also seeing a better appreciation of, of who you are and how you've engaged this world, even how others are, if, as we will see in our passage today once more, there's a value to even seeing the offender. Um, not to um, belittle them and not to even make much of them, but to understand the, the nature of the godless, those who lack, lack the Holy Spirit, those who have no regard for the things of God, those who would even mock your word. It, it, there's a value to even understanding that. 
And so, Lord, would you please help us to see and hear and understand and to grow and mature in these things, to be better worshipers and be found faithful, to think rightly and to, to ultimately, as Jude has exhorted and directed us, to contend earnestly for the faith. So, Lord, be our help and that we would be pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, as we continue our work in Jude, we've come to the, the final point of transition in the book. So obviously, that, that might not sound like a great feat. It's a very, very small letter, and it seems like you could get almost anywhere very quickly. But it is, in terms of our study and our examination, uh, the book has a few transitions in it, as we'll uh, look at a little bit more closely in just a moment. But this is the final point of transition, and there's a shift of emphasis and tone from the ungodly to the beloved. And We've spent a good proportion of time on the ungodly, and it's a bit of a relief to finally return to the beloved. So um, it's a, a valuable shift, as it were. And I want you to see and hear that transition as well, but also its place in this letter. So to that end, we're going to begin by reviewing our outline of the book, and then we'll read the letter as a whole, which is a unique advantage that a very short letter provides us. So it's, it's not even the length of a lot of gospel chapters and even other like things. It's, it's very, very short, and so it yields a really unique advantage in that regard. Uh, we can be familiar with all of its territory very quickly. It's, uh, in that regard, it, um, if you've had the opportunity to study abroad, um, there's some places you won't get to. You, you spend weeks, and you won't cover everywhere. But you go to Israel, and because of its size, you can be here and there, and you can really get a handle on things. Well, Jude's very much like that. It's very small, and so we can get a good handle of it. And before we begin this work, I'll also answer the question that may be running through your minds. It, it probably would be mine. Um, I, I hate that I tend to be a bit cynical. Um, I, I, just to be honest, I doubted we would even get our fire started yesterday, so I'm, that's just, I'm, I'm wired that way. We need people like me sometimes so that, you know, motivate one another. But I think it's a reasonable question to ask, why are we reviewing this outline again? It's such a small book. The outline's very plain. You've drawn from it a couple of times now. Well, we're going to do this first because, well, I already had this conviction, a conviction that um, you should remind and that you should review every so often. Well, Peter really pressed it hard on me. When we were in Second Peter, and he just makes it very, very clear that he had the conviction, and this is an apostle at the end of his life, and he's driving us. I want to stir you up by way of reminder. I want to press before you. I want to keep these things in the fore of your mind. And that's what we want to do as well. So there's that advantage. But I also want you to not only um, advance through sections of a small letter, but rather I want you to, to master it and to let it resonate in your mind. So I don't want us just to go through one or two verses or three or four verses at a time and be like, okay, I appreciate that. And, and that's a little something I can put in my pocket. Well, that's valuable, but I also want you to see how it fits with the book. So there's a recalibration that we do every so often to make sure we see where it fits. Um, especially as those pieces are all building toward, remember that charge that he starts off with? Um, here we can have it up there very plainly here, to contend for the faith, right? That's what we're, we're doing. So how does that fit into that? So I think those are valuable, to stir up by way of reminder, to, to see where it fits, and also to, to, to knit it to our primary theme of the letter. Also, we're going to examine two elements of the outline that we've not to present covered, and, and, and in my judgment, they are valuable and worthy of attention, and part of the reason that we haven't covered it yet is because even as much work as you do up front in the letter and as much work as we do throughout the letter, there's things that continue to be drawn out, and I think this would be a helpful place to, to draw these things out further. So with that, I would encourage you just to, to walk with me as we once more consider the development of this letter 
And if it helps, uh, consider this process like building a, a giant jigsaw puzzle. I know that was, that was, 2020 was probably the year of the jigsaw puzzle. I think maybe it still has some carryover. Some of us already enjoyed it before, but what do you do with that? You, you, pick, um, you pick up with individual pieces, you work with them, you have a view to them, but you're always keeping the whole in mind, right? Nobody builds a puzzle and be like, well, look at these two pieces I put together. Isn't that neat? No, those two pieces need to fit into the whole. So we're, we're working at assembling something, we're building towards something, a unified and complete picture. And so once more, Jude begins with his introduction in verses 1 and 2, followed by a call to contend in verses 3 and 4. And obviously, we express that very, very early in the book, he's giving us the, the why of this letter. I wanted to do one thing, I needed to do this, and they're called to contend. It's a very, very uh, heavy, clear emphasis. And this is also where we have our first major transition in the book. And this transition can be observed from two different angles. Uh, first, we come to verse, um, uh, to verse 5, and we're introducing the, the first of three sections that give special emphasis to God's righteous judgment of the godless invaders. And so you have 1, 2, 3, 4, kind of setting up the first half of the book, and then starting with verse 5, going all the way through verse 16, you have a, a condensed section that we walk through over a number of weeks that again, address the godless invaders. And so with this, we see that there's a clear transition in whom Jude is putting his primary emphasis on in a given passage. And so again, we saw that clearly in verses one and two, it's on the beloved. He's writing to the beloved on his fellow believers. Then in his call to contend, the emphasis is still primarily on the beloved, but by the nature of the subject matter, he also begins engaging the ungodly in verses three and four. So Again, part of how we see these transitions is who is the primary emphasis of not only who he's writing to, but who he's engaging in these moments. So the beloved in Christ in the introduction, the beloved in Christ in the call to contend, but the call to contend by its nature also has to have a view to the ungodly. That's who we're contending with. So again, the attention in verses one through four are primarily on the beloved, but as we come to the first major transition, Jude begins giving attention to the ungodly as well. Then we come to the foundations for righteous judgment in verses 5 through 7, followed by the godless invaders in verses 8 through 13. And to complete this three-part emphasis here, we finish with the surety of righteous judgment in verses 14 through 16, where we landed last week. And so with that, it softly opens up a necessary measure of attention on the beloved, but plainly, uh, its primary emphasis is on the ungodly. And so in verses 5 through 7, he's still talking about the beloved, but very almost uh, bridge-like. So we're going to transition now to the ungodly. And then the focus is primarily the ungodly. And 5 to 7, 8 to 13, focuses on the ungodly. Verses 14 to 16, the focus is on the ungodly. And when we conclude that intensive emphasis on God's righteous judgment of the ungodly, there's the second major shift of the letter. So again, Beloved in Christ, transition, the ungodly. How are the ungodly talked about? With a view to judgment, a three-part emphasis that we developed over the last several weeks. And then we have our next and last transition. And that transition redirects our uh, attention primarily back to the beloved again, with a notable conclusion of the ungodly in verses, uh, the first verses of this section. So again, we have a little bit of an overlap to transition, verses 18 and 19, which are set up with the transition back to the beloved in verse 17. And having called upon the beloved to contend earnestly for the faith, remember that's what he's driving at with this letter, wanted to write about something else, but needed and had to write about this, 
He now drills down on the matter and this final section of working this out in their lives and in the lives of those around him. What does it look like to really contend for the faith? We've kind of talked about a lot of the elements with it. Now he's going to drill down on it, which is where we're beginning with today. And it's a matter that he's made plain in a number of ways um, in terms of this transition from the shift of subject matter, including persons of emphasis. And again, we see that one more time in terms of this last section, returning our focus primarily to the beloved. So the beloved in Christ with a view to the ungodly, which we're going to see today. It's going to look like we're still with the ungodly, but I'd remind you it's, but you beloved. And then we got to talk about these guys and we're going to close them up, but then it's the beloved, the beloved, and then finishes with the doxology on behalf of the beloved as well. So Providing us an introduction to the first, um, uh, this section also provides us with the first uh, imperatives of the book. And you might say, well, what about the call to contend? Well, that is just it. It's a call to contend. It's the, the, the action uh, of the book. It's, it's the direction that he's giving us. But now are the first overt uh, imperatives of the book in this final section, beginning with 17 through 19, that goes all the way through 25. And the first commanding statements that will fill out the, the opening call to contend. So we have that call to contend. And now having focused on the beloved and then the ungodly and back to the beloved, he's giving us our charges. This is what you do. So we're going to walk through that and we're going to see the following commands as it were in verses 17. It's beloved. You remember, you know, it's a command to remember part of what we're doing so that you'll remember verse 21. It's that beloved, keep yourselves. Well, Christ keeps us. He does beloved. Keep yourselves. In verse 22, it's beloved, have mercy on some. And then in verse 23, it's beloved, save others. So this is going to be the, how that, that contending is going to work itself out. You might have been walking through the book and say, well, we've had clear allusions and principles and, and framework for contending, but not a good, just a defined action, as it were. Well, here it comes in these uh, four imperatives there. Now, Jude does not repeatedly use beloved with each of, the, uh, of these commands. So obviously I framed it that way. And if you can look at your text, and I hope you do, I'd prefer to see the top of your heads this morning's. I have minimal PowerPoint, and it's better if you're looking at your text anyway. So, um, but you can see that he doesn't say beloved this, beloved that, beloved that. But what is he doing? Well, in each of these commands, that's how he's framing it. That's their context. He's charging the beloved. That's who he's writing to, and that's how he's framing these sections. And so I do think we're in good territory to view it accordingly. So we have this last section now. This is where we are in that last section, beginning with 17 through 19. And with it, we have remember the apostolic warning in verses 17 through 19. That's where we're going to be this morning. Remember the apostolic warning. And then we're going to see in the following weeks, keep yourselves in the love of God, verses 20 and 21, and then restore others in need, verses 22 and 23. And then finally, we'll get to the doxological conclusion in verses 24 and 25. So I want you to keep all of that in mind. And it might be really challenging, but we've walked in Jude for a number of weeks now, so it's getting more doable. It's getting more reasonable, but it's really kind of important in as much as it's possible to keep that in mind as best we can. The structure has value. But again, for many of you, um, it's only a few more pieces to what we've already been giving attention to throughout this study. So I've added a few elements. I've added the divisions, the first major division, second major division, and now I'm drawing out primary person of, of uh, emphasis. So it's always the beloved in Christ or the ungodly. And you know where the ungodly, well, they're right there in the middle of the heart of the book. So we follow so far? It's very much like what Peter did in a lot of ways. So it should help us in that way as well. But that being said, 
Let's now give attention to the, the copy of the scriptures, uh, your copy of the scriptures, the, the book of Jude, and follow along as we read. And as you see, this first section has its, uh, again, its primary emphasis on the beloved. I want you to see that as we're reading it. I want you to think about that. And so let's read together, um, beginning with verse 1. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're coming to the second section with its primary emphasis on the ungodly, now I want to remind you, though you know all things, that Jesus, having once saved a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, having indulged in the same way as these in gross sexual immorality and having gone after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example and undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men, and that's going to be a phrase that he likes to use for these people, these men, these persons, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and blaspheme glorious ones. But Michael, the archangel, when he, disputing with the devil, was arguing about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these men blaspheme the glorious, th uh, blaspheme the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have poured themselves into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. But Enoch, and the seventh generation from Adam also prophesied about these men, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust, and their mouth speaks arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of their own benefit." And now, the th and now we have the, the third and final section of the book. So we've walked through the godly or the beloved, the ungodly or the wicked, the, the clandestine offenders. And now we're coming to the last shift, which begins with our passage, back to the primary emphasis on the beloved. But you, beloved, must remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, you were, that they were saying to you, and the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And on some who are doubting, have mercy. And for others, save, snatching them out of the fire. And on others, have mercy with fear, hating even the tunic polluted by the flesh." 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, might, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Now, I hope that was helpful in framing these matters. And now as we continue to sharpen our view to the book as a whole and its development to include the respective emphases that are developed through our direct and indirect treatment of them, it still helps to draw details by way of um, isolating them for a moment. So we're going to kind of focus in on a section that we've just walked through to kind of frame our understanding of what's happening here. So again, before we continue to the the, fir, uh, the final transition of the book and, and the, where the intensive emphasis is back in the beloved, our section, I think it's helpful to see and recognize that the section that we've just finished walking through this last week, the three-part emphasis on the judgment of the ungodly, specifically these persons. You heard that language. It's almost a... Um, uh, 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 not quite derogatory, but he's not giving them kind of the dignity of anything more than just these persons, these clandestine offenders. And they, they constitute a major emphasis of this letter, um, as we see here in the middle. And it's not just because of their, their where they are, which uh, does bear a measure of consequence. Obviously, we want to get into the letter. We want to give it a good conclusion, but they're right there in the heart of the letter but also just the intensive treatment it receives. Um, 48% of the book's verses. It's a small book, I recognize that, but 48%, almost half of the book is this middle section right here, and it's focusing on the righteous judgment of the ungodly by means of laying a foundation for judgment, grounds for judgment, and surety of judgment. Half of the letter. So when people think of Jude, a lot of times they might be thinking about that great doxology that it ends with. Some people more academic might be thinking, ah, who, who wrote first, Jude or Peter? Well, I'll give you the answer to that, and I know you know it. Peter wrote, Jude wrote later, drawing from Peter. And then perhaps you're asked, well, what do you think of with Jude? Well, I think of the Lord keeping his beloved, the call to contend, the heart of the book there. It's about half of the book is specifically on the righteous, sure judgment of the ungodly. And then we get to the last part. Because that's how we think, right? We're structuring the book. We're thinking about it as a whole. So that being said, with this intensive focus on the ungodly and their judgment and view, and the fact that Jude will finish his engagements with them in our primary passage this morning, I'd like to more directly review their treatment, the treatment of the ungodly throughout the letter. Because when we finish with them today, they're done. Not that they're still here, and they're still, Lord forbid, that's the nature of the church. They will creep in among us. But Jude's done with them. He's going to just isolate his attention to the beloved. So we're going to finish with them today. And so I think there's a value to uh, considering how he's developed them throughout the book so that we can properly conclude with them as well. And so we're going to look at their treatment in verses 8 through 16, because these are the verses where, as you well know now, that the ungodly sit center stage. It's very plain. Now, in verses 5 through 7, and then 17 through 19, they do have a heavy presence, but it's, it's really coupled tightly with Jude speaking to the beloved first, the beloved of the primary emphasis. And so we'll, we'll consider that in, in due time, but, um, because we're going to give some attention to the beloved as well. But that being said, um, we're now going to give special consideration of Jude's treatment of these persons, uh, the ungodly, the clandestine offenders. And with this, we're building toward their final treatment in our primary passage today. So in verses 8 through 10, there was a, an overt correlation between these men and the historic examples of the recipients of God's righteous judgment. 
Now, he's not saying that, ah, that, they were the ones back then. No, he's saying there's a, a like equivalency. They're, they're of the same quality and nature, and they can expect the same outcome. In the same way, these men, and he continues to build from there, these men are dismissive also of the authoritative truth and in turn embrace their own dreams. So they, that might sound silly, may sound overly mystical. I don't think it's either. It's that they've supplanted the authority of God's word, which Peter gives a lot of attention to. You remember that, right? He didn't go into the false teachers before laying the foundation of the words of the prophets and apostles in chapter one, beginning, or then going into chapter two. And then chapter three, when he was talking about the mockers, he didn't go into them before speaking about the authority of the prophets and apostles. Well, here that we see that these clandestine offenders have created authority unto themselves, governed by an instinctual, uh, instinctual drive and not holy discipline. So we saw that, that they, they're governed in an animal-like way. In verses 11, uh, we saw they were rebuked with the weight of the woe against them. And so uh, they've become an authority to themselves. They've done as they've pleased. They've arrogantly acted. Verse uh, 11, he begins with that woe against them. And so you remember with that, that was a weighty, uh, it carries a measure of um, pain with it. I know that we could say, well, a woe is just a rebuke or a warning, but I also think there's a measure of pain that's associated with it. So that woe against them. And what sense? Because they've gone the way of Cain. They've indulged in the air of Balaam. They've perished in Korah's rebellion. And then in verses 12 and 13, so we're still walking through these clandestine godless offenders, these persons. In verses 12 through 13, these men are dressed down in a blistering list of descriptions. And so I read those rather quickly because I think there's an intensive-like nature to it and regarding their, their destructive and doomed character. And we see these multiple examples. They're hidden reefs in the church's love feast. They're themselves feasting without proper fear, caring only for themselves. They're clouds without water, carried along by trees, with, um, carried along by winds, trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their shame like foam, and shooting stars, destined to be consumed by the darkness. And then in verse 14 and 15, we observed uh, this last week, that these men were prophesied by, uh, about by Enoch. And so you remember thousands of years ago, and this was uh, one of the earliest men he walked in the same time frame as Adam. Did they have an overlap in terms of relationship and geography? We don't know. But all the way back to Enoch, it was spoken of to their judgment and condemnation of the ungodly for their ungodly deeds and ungodly words. Therefore, they will experience the righteous judgment of God at Christ's return, at which time they will answer for all their ungodly deeds and all their ungodly words. And so we saw that clustered very tightly, ungodly, 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 four times in that verse, all, 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 four times in that verse. And then finally, in verses 16, uh, in verse 16, we observe some of the nature and content of their abusive speech, expressions of their being lust-driven, grumbling, fault-finders, and arrogant flatterers for their own gain. So that's the nature of the ungodly. They're an authority to themselves. They are arrogant. They're ignorant. They are fruitless and useless. Uh, they abuse with their words. It's just this range of things, but all the connecting points to that point to their righteous judgment. We understand that, right? Okay, that's, that's the nature of our contending is also understanding that. Now, I'm stopping just short of our passage today, though, in terms of the indictment and the, the, the language against them, um, because its primary emphasis is on the beloved and not on the offenders. But I want to read its first two verses now of our passage proper to draw what I've been working toward in giving you this review of Jude's engagement of the offenders. So in verses 17 to 18, you can see that, but you, beloved, must remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, and the last time they will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. Now, 
we can pause there for a moment and say, wait a second, now, a lot of those things in that list sounded very uh, Peter-like, right? A lot of those things, I've already mentioned 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 3, and so you're already, you're already getting familiar, getting the idea that that sounds very Peter-like, what he said in, in verses 8 through what, 16 there. But when I just read verse 17 and 18, you're thinking, wait a second, that sounds very Peter-like. And there's even quotation marks in there, so maybe he's quoting Peter. Well, it does sound Peter-like because he's perhaps most tightly echoing Peter here. We've talked about he's echoing Peter. He's, he's not repeating Peter, but he's echoing Peter, namely 2 Peter 3, 1 to 3 where Peter writes, this is now beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the command of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Knowing this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come in their mocking, following after their own lust. Now, hold that in mind for a moment while that fuller treatment of the ungodly is still fresh before you, or hopefully fresh after our exciting interruptions there. But keeping both those things in mind, the nature of how he's impacted the ungodly offenders, how he's talked about it, how Peter's talked about it. And with that larger overview of the ungodly in mind, consider how Jude gave us a, a range of descriptions of these men, these ungodly clandestine offenders who have crept into Christ's church. And for many of those uh, for many of these descriptions, he drew from Peter's second letter, just like we talked about. There, there's a clear echo. And I know, you know um, our children and even some of us uh, in different regards, there's a, there's a danger. You, you have somebody that you like, you respect, you read, you study, and you can start echoing them. If you do that too much in the academic world, we can maybe slip into a fault that we call plagiarism. So is Jude plagiarizing Peter? No, he's not. Um, he's one who sees Peter's warnings as coming to pass. Peter, remember, said, this is happening or will happen. Jude says, ah, it has happened. And so he's saying what Peter warned about is now coming to pass. And he's one in whom Peter's exhortations and warnings clearly left an indelible mark. There are people that you know who trained them because you can hear the one that trained them and how they talk, their inflections. Um, R.C. Sproul was uh, extremely well known for his grovelly voice and how he would do whatever. And then you, I think it was, was it John Gershner that was kind of his main, one of his main teachers. You, you blindfold yourself and you think the voice is a little bit different, but the inflections are the same and some of the, even the writing on the board, wait a second. It's not because he's parroting him, it's because of the clear influence. And I would argue so is Jude, but Jude's not only doing that in a general sense of being uh, marked by Peter, but because of the content as well. And so Jude generously, generously drew on Peter when taking on the weighty responsibility of exposing and rebuking these offenders, a work I would remind you was birthed out of conviction over desire. He, he never even intended to write about this. Rather, his intent was to write about their common salvation, but the need of the day required otherwise. And so what does he do? He draws on Peter. So again, he drew heavily on Peter, as I fully expect we would have too. I think that's a good thing to do. You see what Peter said was going to come to pass. It comes to pass. What do we do? We look at Peter. 
But what uniquely catches my attention in this matter is not where he develops a given detail differently than Peter in this particular section or what he chooses to add or exclude when writing so closely about the development of the same subject. Rather, what catches my attention is that of all the times he could have directly cited or quoted Peter, he chose to do this in our primary passage today in a unique way in verses 17 and 18, a passage which I recognize is functionally not much different than the other examples that we've looked at with this sounds like Peter. That sounds like Peter. Peter used that same words. Peter uses that same structure even. But even with the closeness of language in these other sections between these two men and their writings, and a passage in which Peter also highlights uh, the apostle himself here in terms of his own authority and the apostle's authority, I would argue this is still a section of all the echoes, of all the similarities. It's one of particular attention because Jude choose to, choose to give so much special attention to the same manner as Peter here, and he does this by pressing one final and explicitly clear connection. So of all the things, I think he's drawing in, and he's tightening the screws, and he's sharpening the focus very uniquely here between the two letters. I think he wants us to see these two letters closely now because he speaks of the forthcoming and absolutely sure judgment of the ungodly who have crept into Christ's church to produce various measures of harm. And what is it that they do? What is the harm that they do? Well, they both, excuse me, what is the the development of harm that Peter and Jude speak about? They both develop a culminating emphasis. Remember 2 Peter chapter 3. I know it's been a several weeks now, but they both focused on the culmination of Christ's return, right? And then with Christ's return comes judgment, glorious return with a glorious judgment. And what is the response of the offender in both letters? very explicitly, they mock, right? Now, he could have just said, yeah, yeah, they, you know, we're, we're focusing on Christ's return and with the judgment, and he's given a lot of similarities between these offenders, but now he's, they've both come to the same pointed conclusion. The judgment of the ungodly is developed, it's developed, it's developed. Now he all but appropriates Peter's language to drive home that just like Peter said, that Christ is coming in glory and that Christ coming in glory means judgment of the ungodly, and they mock that. Now, Jude has just done what? Well, he's just taken us to Enoch. Why did he take us to a prophet that we didn't know was a prophet until Peter said he was a prophet, or until Jude said he was a prophet? Because Enoch showed us that all the way back from the earliest days, that God prophesied that the son would come, and he would come in glory, and he would come in judgment. And what is the response the clandestine offenders that are destined for righteous judgment, a righteous judgment they cannot bear up under by a Lord they have denied, they mock. They deride and they make little of that which is holy, which is great, and which will not be silenced, shamed, or dissuaded by their petulant insults and dismissive critiques. So that, I would argue, is what both Peter and Jude both drove our final attention to when speaking of these persons. A culminating emphasis, again, on Christ's glorious return and with it, judgment. The very subjects that we worked through last week, again, with Enoch's prophecy, he'd already been building it and building it and building it. You saw that all the way back to the wilderness generation, that they were in unbelief and they perished in their unbelief and the, the cities of the valley and Korah and Cain. He's been talking about judgment, but he really drove it home with the return, the glorious return of the Son. And these engagements of Christ's glorious return and judgment both times, again, were followed by the best that these offenders can offer in their carnal belief and malice hearts. The best they can do, the best response. So sometimes we walk away from things and think like, oh, I should have said that. Or maybe you, you pat yourself on the back because, you know, 
you felt like you, you had an Andre moment and you did say it and you said it in the moment and boy, you shined. But what's the best they can offer in the face of the weight of judgment? All they can do is mock. They mock that which they cannot answer or bear up under. And this is exactly what the apostles told us these persons would do. That was the continual testimony of the apostles. Expect them to mock. Now, I hope that you're beginning to see some of the framing now, some of the framing these matters together to better appreciate our passage. But let me help keep these things together for you um, because, boy, we've had some interruptions and it's been a long walk through this. So we started off by reviewing an outline of the book. And you might have been like, why are we reviewing the outline of the book? Because it's the skeleton of the body and that's really important. It holds us together. Otherwise, we're just, we're just jelly. We need our skeletons. And so the, it's giving framework, it's structure, integrity to this book. And then we fleshed out this outline more than we previously have by way of showing you the book's major divisions and the, the primary persons of emphasis. You remember primary persons of emphasis? You could have seen it, but the magic screen disappeared. It was the beloved, and then it was the ungodly, and now it was the beloved again. Two matters that go very closely together with those divisions. Who is he focusing on? Who's the primary person of attention? And then, and this is important today because we're coming to the second and last major transition of the book, a transition that will take us from the primary focus of the ungodly, which constituted what about half of the book in the middle of the book, to now the beloved. And with this, we read the letter as a whole to see this framework fleshed out and to give us perspective in the transition we are working through now. Then we walked back through Jude's development of the ungodly throughout this letter with the aim to better understand his final engagement of them, which mirrors Peter's final engagement with his readers, both identifying their respective clandestine offenders as mockers, an identification that came immediately after a culminating view to Christ's glorious return, which will bring with it judgment of the ungodly, matters the apostles plainly had drawn out for the church and that have and will continue to receive significant attention. Now, we're going to examine Jude's engagement with the beloved in this letter. And that's not simply because we're craving a balance, uh, to, to balance out the treatment of the ungodly. We've talked about the ungodly so much, but because the engagement of the beloved in our passage is a major transition point in the letter. Remember, that's what the hinge came with. But you, beloved, ungodly, ungodly, their judgment, their judgment, their judgment, culminating judgment, Christ's return, but you, beloved. So now we're shifting our attention. And it's, again, uh, I would argue, um, some can maybe uh, conclude otherwise, but I would argue that this is uh, the, the focus on the beloved is really Jude's greater expectation. I think that's the heart of his letter. I know I've said in the physical heart of the letter in terms of proximity and location and development, but this is a letter to the beloved and it's a charge to the beloved. And so I think he wants to give us uh, clear expectations of, of, what he's, of what he's called the beloved to do and contending for the faith. And that's, again, not to dismiss uh, the place or value of having worked through the unpacking of the offenders. That clearly was important, but the beloved are the truer aim of Jude's writing. He didn't write, hey, folks, who's ever interested in hearing about the clandestine offenders that have invaded Christ's church? Now, he's saying, beloved, you need to be aware of these things. Beloved, know and understand this. Beloved, contend. And so his focus is clearly on the church, on Christ's beloved. So we first see Jude's engagement of the beloved at the very outset of the letter. Verse 1, where he identified the recipients of the letter as the called, the beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Verse 2, he expresses a blessing for them, the multiplication of mercy, peace, and love. 
Then in verse 3, he personally addresses his readers as beloved, not only beloved of God, but beloved to Jude as well. And that's a very important detail. It's not just, well, God loves you. You know, Jude's saying he has an affection for them as well because they're part of Christ's church. And with this, he also spoke of his original purpose for writing from which he has been redirected. But in this, we learn of their having a common salvation. So he, he does say, well, I wanted to write to you about this, about our common salvation. That means, what do they share? A common salvation. He also identifies the beloved as saints or holy ones. Then in verse 4, Jude spoke to their necessary call to action. Contend for the faith because there were certain persons, namely the ungodly clandestine offenders who have crept in among the beloved and who deny the beloved's only master and Lord Jesus Christ. With this, we begin to learn much of these offenders who are consistently referenced to, again, with that simple, almost derisive way of saying certain persons, these persons, certain persons who have crept in unnoticed, certain persons who have been marked out for their condemnation, certain persons who have been identified as ungodly, certain persons who turn the grace of God into sensuality. This is three and four here. Certain persons who deny the beloved's only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And to this, he will go on to add that they are mockers having no shame or due regard for these offenses or the judgment that they produce for them. So every indictment, every charge, they're mocking, they're pushing up against. They're, they're not conceding and saying, yes, and I'm going to give an account to that. And in that, they are mocking. They're making little of the fact that they will be held to an account, making little of the fact of how the Lord of glory has identified them. But continuing with the beloved, in verses 5 through 7, Jude expands in their call to contend, addressing the character and nature of the offenders by way of Old Testament examples, examples that remind them that they are foundational precedents for God's righteous judgment of the wicked to include the destruction of the unbelieving Exodus generation that we referenced, the supernaturally incarcerated sexually perverse angels from the days before the flood, which we've given a lot of attention to in 2 Peter and in Jude, and the destruction of the cities of the valley. Why is that important? Because their destruction serves as an enduring example of the forthcoming punishment of eternal fire. All matters that produce sobering thoughts for the righteous. You can't look at that and say like, wow, the Lord destroyed an unbelieving generation after the magnificent and glorious exodus. The Lord incinerated the cities of the valley because of their perverse sin and not be sobered, right, as a righteous person. And yet, as Jude will go on to make plain, the ungodly clandestine offenders would see God's arm as too short to reach to deliver such a blow toward them. That is mocking. To say that, yes, the Lord has done this, but he's not going to do it to me. That's the nature of mocking. Even if he has done it like things before, don't expect any such matters for it to happen to me. That's not dismissive, that's mocking. And then we have this extended pause of Jude's direct engagement of the beloved, where we, again, the heart of the book, as we've spoken to, this gap consists of almost half of the letter's verses, drills down on the offenses and consequences for the ungodly, culminating with a prophecy from Enoch, the seventh from Adam, who spoke of Christ's glory and judgment. Then we come to our passage. So when our passage opens up with, but you, beloved, you see what's happening? 50% of the book we just slugged through. It's like yesterday, uh, we're cleaning brush and, and uh, it's, uh, I'm not going to say you know who did the most work with the most scratches. It may just be some of us were more scratch prone. But there's, you don't go fast to that, do you? And why? Because because the thorns hurt and because you get stuck and because some people throw the, the chain on their chainsaws and though they said they never happened before and kept happening yesterday. But things happen. You just don't advance quickly. But when you finally hit that gap and you're free, it's like, oh, oh, 
Finally. And that's where we are. It's, it's as our, our passage opens up with the ungodly, the ungodly, the ungodly, but you, beloved. And it's like we're, we're gulping as much fresh air as possible because now we're in friendly territory. Now we're back to the, the, really the heart of Jude and what he wants to drive at. Because while Jude has clearly spoken to their identity, expectations, and work, he spent a significant amount of time focusing primarily on the ungodly. But now he returns to the beloved, and in this he immediately gives them their first direct command and this larger call to contend earnestly for the faith. And that command was to remember. Remember? That was the command we talked about. It's to remember. But you, beloved, must remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude, like Peter, did not find the work of stirring others up by way of reminder a preferential style of teaching. That might be something that some of us like to do. It's helpful to stir people up by way of reminder. But Peter saw it as a solemn duty, and I think Jude saw it as such as well, so much so that he would command them to remember. And a work that the beloved were to engage in themselves, remember a critical work in the call to contend for the faith and one that I have been drilling down on this morning. That's why I keep going over these things is so, but you will remember. And so that when we talk about the beloved and give this emphasis, you don't just walk away all squishy and be like, yeah, we're in the beloved part now. And he's given us some final exhortations about the ungodly, but we can keep moving on. No, you need to appreciate that by remembering the framing of how we got there and the larger perspective of the book. And final, engagement of the ungodly will therefore make more sense when you have in the fore of your mind the nature of both the enemy and yourselves. Because this is an opponent that you need to be aware of. There's a value to remembering because this opponent doesn't wear a uniform, right? It's not like, oh, there's the ungodly, there's the clandestine offenders, there's the ones who would seek to wreak havoc on Christ's church. But what have they done? They've assumed the identity of the beloved while being absolutely nothing like us. And Judah's explained just how unlike us they are. And so remembering these matters is indispensable in the work of contending. And as Thomas Schreiner stated, remembering in the scriptures does not involve mere mental recollection as when we remember a person's name that we had temporarily forgotten. Remembering means that one takes to heart the words spoken so that they are imprinted upon one's life. So what exactly is, is it that we are called and commanded to remember here? So if we're going to press... You're commanded to remember. You have to remember. Well, it's that the testimony of the apostles was very clear and well-known throughout the church, namely that in the last times there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. Jude is calling us to remember those whom he invested so much of his attention on in this letter, the ungodly, and to remember their nature. You need to understand their nature, their character, the harm that they would seek to introduce to Christ's church. Remember that in the last times, the season of history, which you occupy, you might think like, boy, I've been around that long. You are, you are in the last times. We've established that in second Peter chapter three, the season of history that began with Christ's first coming and that will conclude with his return. And remember that in such times as our own, there will be mockers. That's part of what he's calling us to in this call to contend. Remember, this is happening. This is will happen. And they're going to be fueled. They're going to be fueled by their ungodly lust, driven by carnal desires. But what are they mocking? Well, we've been talking about this, but nevertheless, it's still a good question. Remember, there are bad questions. There's even terrible questions, but that's a good question. What are they mocking? If we are commanded to remember and to remember that they're mockers coming and they're mocking, what is it that they're mocking? Well, Peter's developed this matter more fully. Jude appears to provide no details here because in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says, here's a whole section on the mockers and their mocking. But Jude doesn't really... Say, he just says, remember the mockers will come in their mocking. 
Well, now we have a rather puzzling context, don't we? Because the introduction of these persons in verse 4 stated that they have crept in unnoticed. How do they creep in unnoticed? They're not noticed. They're indistinguishable, or so it would seem. That means that they have, in some measure, infiltrated the church and were presumed to be believers in good standing. Does that mean that the church is just full of a bunch of ignorant folks that just can't see the difference between a, a bad guy and a good guy? No. They've crept in unnoticed, yet the pursuit of their ungodly lust quickly outpaces the charade of their false identity as they are also introduced as those who pervert the grace of God and deny our Lord. And so eventually it becomes more plain, doesn't it? Increasingly plain. It's like, uh, uh, I would say I'm not proud of this, but I kind of think I am because I've shared about it a number of times. Um, years ago, I uh, was playing paintball, and uh, I think Willem would be mildly proud of this because it was semi-violent but not harmful to other people. Um, and teams wore armbands, or there's armbands and whatnot. And I was going down a trench, and there was a gentleman that I was approaching, and he wasn't on my team. And it's, it's, it's not good to hide your armband. That's really, it's, that's not good. And so I didn't. I just kept one arm down and I waved. And he waved back. And then he turned the other way and I shot him. <laughs> That's the nature of the clandestine offender, right? They, they've crept in unnoticed. They've gone un, unaware. But give them time and what happens? It becomes real obvious, doesn't it? Nobody was confused at that point in time that, wait a second, we should have looked at that guy a little bit more closely. But that's the very nature of these morbid contradictions in which they take pleasure in operating, claiming to be among the beloved while wreaking havoc within the church broadly and in individual lives. It's a clear expression of their mockery also because, like, I quite literally made a mockery of that man. I made a mockery of their team. I crept in. I went unnoticed. I didn't lie about it. I just let them come to their own conclusions. But my actions eventually betrayed me, and in that, I mocked them. And that's the nature of these offenders. And don't forget they're coming into Christ's church. And again, to have the resume that we've examined of them would lead no clear thinking person to the conclusion that they are among the ranks of the beloved of God, yet they think so little of the character of Christ and what he expects of his people that they would gladly appropriate the identity of Christian themselves. Again, thereby making a mockery of the identity of the true beloved. So while Jude does not directly develop the character and nature of their mocking here in our passage, I would argue that he has been making the case for their mocking since the moment he introduced them. They have been mocking the entire time. When they identify as being in Christ and conduct themselves the way they do, that is mocking every bit of the way. A case that was systematically built throughout the heart of the letter and one that came to a climatic finish with Enoch's prophecy, thereby tying Jude's expression of these offenders and their mockery with Peter's expression of their mockery in his letter, where it was very clear, Christ's return, glory, judgment, mocking. A denial that they cannot help but make as they cannot, again, bear up under the weight of the truth that demands of them. Uh, they can't handle it. They quite literally cannot, they can't accept a righteous judge. And this is not unlike the range of extremes that people often fall under when overwhelmed with hard news. Some people laugh and some people cry. They're just, they're undone one way or the other. And it's the wicked here that are laughing. God's going to call all men to an account. Some men will laugh. That's mocking. The wicked laugh. But those who properly see themselves before a holy and righteous God, they cry. And they cry in concert with Peter's first audience at Pentecost. What should we do? And that crying is a redemptive crying, right? The polar opposite of mocking. It's humility. 
And it's these who find salvation in Christ, while those who persist in their laughing mock at that which they do not understand and refuse to believe. And here I would remind you that among the many offenses and problems of the mockers is that of authority. Not only the authority the Lord has and established in the home, the government, and church, but the authority of the scriptures, as they will not submit to any such command to remember the words of the apostles, as they've proven that they are in authority unto themselves. Dreaming dreams, they have secured the necessary allowances to defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme glorious ones. Again, mocking mocking what God would demand of them, lives of holiness, and mocking that there will be consequences for reframing, uh, for reframing the identity of Christ's church in a manner of their liking, because that's what they've done. They've identified themselves as being in Christ, and therefore, as an ambassador of Christ, this is what Christ's people look like. They've reframed and re-identified the Christian, and again, they've mocked Christ in that. But mock as they will, there will be consequences, eternal consequences. And now, in making final statements regarding these persons, Jude states, In verse uh, 19, these are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, not having the Spirit. And with this, we see that the nature of an internal threat and assault is that it will produce fracturing. So whereas an external threat usually produces a higher measure of unity and shared resolve to hold fast, so somebody... Uh, starts harassing Grace Bible Church uh, for whatever reason. People are mocking outside or carrying on. We're going we're gonna to soldier through this together, right? But you put somebody in the midst of our body and they start doing harm. What does that do? It fractures. So when it's an internal, internal assault, things are quite different because these are the ones with whom you have identified with. Wait a second. We, we, we walked together. We were invested in one another's life. We cared for one another. We loved one another. So when they prove to be your greatest opponent, opponent, division is inevitable, right? And that's the nature of the mocker. Now, to be clear, there's a place for proper divisions. We, we have to know that. And I, I don't want to overqualify here, but Jesus was consistently at the center of division during his public ministry. We've seen that throughout the life of Christ's study. Trying to understand the identity of, of Jesus and how this was expressed in the prophets produced no small measure of, of division. We see that in John 7 working through the the practical outworking of faith and practice in the area of Sabbath keeping, which was, again, a major point of concern. That provoked division. Many places, John 9 is an easy one to look at. Jesus provoked a division as belief and unbelief were clashing under the weight and message of his words. When he spoke and that his words demanded certain responses, it produced a measure of division. We saw that uh, with what we would regard as life-giving and precious words, John chapter 10. Uh, further, we know that doctrine divides in the large and small scale as well. There's, there's a reason we have a doctrinal statement, right? We, we're intentionally producing division, a healthy division, a statement uh, that expresses what the church teaches, what leadership is expected to adhere to, and that represents the conviction of the members. And I recognize that some of the nuances, if there's disagreement and you're in the, L, you're in the uh, membership uh, candidate process, as it were, then we'll work through some of that because... We're tight, but there's even measures of what's expected of general membership versus when you're teaching. And so we work through those things, but there's division that we're introducing, a proper division. But the doctrinal statement is fair. It's accurate representation of this church and by its very nature distinguishes our fellowship from others with whom we have good relationships. And again, by design, the doctrinal statement gives us clear parameters for expressing core truths. But outside of those parameters are varying degrees of division. And that's a healthy division. It provides discipline and clarity. It allows differing ideas to be reasonably challenged, more fully expressed than some generic concession that, well, all truth can be vaguely known and that we're all entitled to an opinion. No, we will 
draw a line, and with that, we're producing a measure of division, but again, a healthy division. So there's varying degrees of flexing with clear parameters, and there's an openness to relationship with those of a like faith, but who have reached some differing conclusions from nuanced details to even hermeneutical paradigms. But again, even here, there must be limits and therefore division. Further, even under the most generous breadth of doctrinal tolerance, one must concede that division must be introduced over matters of heresy, which by definition is a sect or a divided group. Therefore, we're communicating more than just general division with the term heresy. We're expressing a division that is outside the bounds of orthodoxy or clear and defined truths, which brings us back to the offenders of which Peter and Jude have given so much attention. Regarding the division of these clandestine offenders, it is not a nuanced division of doctrine, nor is it simply a differing school of interpretation. Rather, it's a condemning departure from truth, as Peter made plain from the point of his introducing, or introducing these persons in 2 Peter chapter 2. But, quote, quote, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who secretly introduced destructive heresies. Heresies, a dividing sect. It's a dividing sect outside of the bounds of orthodoxy. And what, how do we know that? Even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So we recognize the nature of their division is a doctrinal division. Doctrinal division can be good because it clarifies, but doctrinal division that's within the parameters of orthodoxy is acceptable. When you go beyond that, now you have become these persons, these dividers. Finally, regarding this approach to the matter of continuity and division, consider our practice um, in mutual participation with the Lord's Supper. So I was qualifying last week who can participate or who we're going to ask to participate and who we're going to ask to refrain. There, the points of division come with someone who's not of a like faith. If you're not of a like faith, I don't understand what, what are you doing? What are you remembering? What are you participating in? So don't participate. Someone who is not submitted to believer's baptism, well, we, you're going to publicly identify as being in Christ, then participate. But if not, then you need to refrain. Or we would ask someone who is an un unrepentant sin not to participate. And it's the last of these being the most pronounced element of division and where our company would part with these clandestine offenders. Therefore, church discipline is imperative for the health of the true believer, the clarifying reality of the unbeliever, and the health of the church as the fracturing divisions of sin will go on indefinitely. And ones especially driven by carnality with no regard for such matters, if you don't address that division, it will continue to divide, which is why we have to take matters accordingly. Part of our contending for the faith is defending the faith. Part of our defending for the faith is disciplining those who would claim to be in Christ, which even the clandestine offenders do. We don't know who they are. So what do we do? We do restorative discipline. And what makes for excellent cover in the midst of that is uh, if you're a clandestine offender, if you're one of these persons, then you'll employ your tool, which is what? It's mocking. And so when we address division, they introduce more mocking with statements like, you don't really believe that, do you? Or you're just being legalistic to take such unnecessary courses of restorative action that only embarrass and hurt people. Division accompanied with mocking. Or the church consists of a bunch of sinning hypocrites who make examples of persons that are embarrassing them or putting light on their own pet sins. Again, division married with mockery. And we see it over and over again. And such is the nature of fracturing of causing division because they have not submitted to Christ or his lordship. Therefore, they are ever undermining and splintering the church in a range of ways from introducing error to undermining authorities to sabotaging restorative discipline. So they cause divisions and are worldly minded. Their perception, their understanding and thinking are restricted to that which is temporal and carnal. 
They have no view to the eternal or the things of God. Their vantage point is the experiences and satisfactions of this life. And finally, Peter state, or excuse me, Jude states they're devoid of the Spirit. They lack. Where were we just last uh, two weeks ago? In the Gospel of John. What did the Gospel of John cover in the upper room? Jesus talking about the who coming. Don't disappoint, Frank. The Holy Spirit. They lack every articulated advantage that Jesus promised the Spirit would provide. So they have identified as being in Christ and part of Christ's church, and all the while they're denying our only Master and Lord, and thereby establishing the foundation of their lack, as it were, as it pertains to the empowering work of the Spirit of God in their lives. First and foremost, they're not having the Spirit of God as a testimony that they're not being born again, or they're not being in Christ. We see that in John 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, chapter 6, Romans 8. They will not enjoy the grace of God or the grace of being led into all truth, John 16. They will not be empowered to be true witnesses of the resurrected Jesus Christ, thereby making their identity within the church ones of being certified imposters and powerless frauds, Acts 1, Acts 5. They will not enjoy the comforting, uh, comforting help provided by the Holy Spirit, Acts 9. They will never experience the rich fullness of the love of God, only its broad expression of affection um, that, uh, that offered salvation that they've rejected, Romans 5. They will never know the life and peace that comes with having one's mind set on the Spirit, a life pleasing to God, Romans 8. They will never know resurrection hope, Romans 8. They will never know true victory over the flesh, the putting to death the deeds of the body, Romans 8. They will never know the help the Spirit provides or his ministry of interceding for, the, for believers, Romans 8 again. They will never abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit, Romans 15. They will never know the depths of the truth revealed in God's word, 1 Corinthians 2. They will never know the confident assurance of eternal inheritance, 2 Corinthians 1, 5, Ephesians 1. They will never know empowered obedience for God's holy living, Galatians 5. They will never know the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Galatians 5. They will never truly know and experience God, Ephesians 3. They will never know the transformative work of the Spirit expressed in sanctification, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 Peter 1. They will never know or experience any of these things because they are imposters and they lack the Spirit of God. They thumb their nose at the Lord and lack the Spirit of God. Dangerous, fracture-producing, worldly-minded, spiritless imposters with whom we have been called to contend. So remember the testimony of the scriptures. That's not an option. That's a command. That mockers will come with their mocking. And this is all too often a mocking that's expressed by claiming Christ with one's lips and rejecting him with their lives. So as we work toward a conclusion now, I want to speak to these matters as they impact our own church body. Or I want to rephrase that. I want to speak to these matters as I, I hope to... Uh, to recognize they may impact our church body because you don't be so naive to think that we're immune, right? If, if, Paul's, if Paul's speaking face-to-face with the Ephesian elders whom he's invested his life in and said, they're coming, they're coming to you, don't be so naive to think that this is not something we're going to have to contend with. And so we recognize that. And first, I want to address that I'm persuaded that Jude and Peter had a kind of person in mind when they spoke about false teachers. They are profiling, as it were. Oh, it's a, it's a dirty word. It's terrible. They were profiling. They had somebody in mind they, when they spoke about false teachers and mockers and those who have crept into Christ's church. I think categorically we can consider these persons probably adults who have a clear awareness of themselves and their world, who have to, who have to varying degrees given thought to the scriptures and the things of God. They perhaps grew up in church, and that should be a measure of uh, sobering. It's likely that they were truth-rich in their backgrounds, 
We don't know for certain, not all circumstances, but there's a good chance they grew up in church or some kind of spiritual context and now have intentionally come in to the church with thoughts and positions that they know challenge the established faith. Not challenge like, oh, there's a nuance here, but they're challenging the faith that's once for all been handed down to us. They presumably also have fixed sin patterns. And that's not just saying, well, I'm going to impugn terrible things about them. It's the patterns that the scriptures have made very clear. You just, it's like following the money and following the other offenses. They probably have lives that are marked by sin or at the least have ordered their lives in such a way that such a path is likely, if not inevitable. And often they're identified because their appetite for sin outpaces, give it time, it will outpace their capacity or even desire to conceal it, betraying an inconsistency in the life and testimony. They look and act not unlike the beloved, but they are the ungodly. And therefore, ultimately, that's all a facade because they don't look and they don't act like us. And in such cases, church discipline must be applied, not because we know the hearts of men and can decisively declare someone as being amongst these persons. Ah, we knew it. We knew it all along. You were never one of us. But rather, these clandestine offenders, uh, they, they, again, we can't peek into their souls. The Lord knows. But in the full process of pleading, praying, petitioning for someone to repent of their own known patterns of willful and consistent sin, they're pursuing the path of Cain and Balaam and Korah, as it were, then if they persist in that, not knowing their hearts, we have to put them out of the identified fellowship of the church unless and until they do repent and are restored because now they look more like these persons than the beloved. And so we have to cause that division ourselves, not because we've discovered the true identity of their hearts, but because they've betrayed a clear identification again with the ungodly over the beloved. And truthfully, we cannot expect someone who lacks the spirit of God to walk as if they did. So it's a painful service to press them to examine their true identity for their own soul's sake. And I fear for those persons. I fear for those who have been put out of the church in various capacities because of their unrepentant sin, but I fear more for someone else. The one who mocks God and his truth but evades the process of restorative church discipline because their form of mocking is one of talking the talk and appearing to walk the walk of the beloved, but they cannot help but fail because they are worldly-minded and lack the Spirit of God. However, their failures are more polite, obscure, mostly unnoticed. So they will persist in their mocking by maintaining a testimony that is not theirs to be had. They're like someone who, and maybe they own a car, but their car lacks an engine. And even if you're not a mechanic, and even if you're with me and you're not sure how one thing works than the other, you just know the key turns, the thing makes more noise and you move, you can follow this much. If a car lacks an engine, it doesn't work, right? They're like a car that lacks an engine. So what can they do with that? Well, they can push it, and they can get some places. But that's really exhausting. It's quite unprofitable, and it's really an absurd effort for no true or lasting results. Or they may even find a hill to push it down and coast, and then have the appearance of joy and faithfulness until they reach the bottom, and they're left with nothing but the perception of the abilities to be on glorious journeys, only to have reached a dead end because they wholly lack the capacity to really move, much less climb up the hills. And such is the clandestine offender. All the appearances, maybe some swift movement in certain circumstances, maybe they muscle through it, but it's really just an insulting facade. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. They lack the spirit of God. And to such a person, we would urge to avail themselves of God's patience, a patience that desires all persons to submit to Christ and genuine faith and repentance in these last days. But you who are truly among the beloved of God, what do we do? We remember because mockers will come. Many will not heed our calls to repent and believe, so they'll create fractures and hurt 
likely potentially within our own church body. And that's, that's really, really grieves us, doesn't it? But that's the nature of what the church has experienced. But we also rest in the fact that as we've sung, and as the scriptures testify, as Judas stated, and as Judah will command us, Christ will keep his own. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to, to give a closure to the ungodly, to these clandestine offenders. And Lord, I thank you that as we opened in prayer, giving attention to your word forever being kept in the heavens and your faithfulness being expressed through that and the powerful nature of your word, that uh, even through, by, uh, by way of interruptions, uh, um, losing notes, losing PowerPoints, that, that's not, none of those places are where the authority and clarity of truth lies. It's in the, the fact that we have an enduring word, an enduring word that's been passed on through the apostles, and with that, the command to remember. And what are we remembering? We're remembering that these offenders are present, that, that they will come, but that you will righteously judge them, that they will mock, and yet you will be faithful. And so, Lord, may you give us help to not be distracted by lesser things. Would you give us help to persevere well? Would you give help to, to examine our own hearts and, and uh, forfeit any, any posturing we may have when we forfeit clear testimony? And for any who are not genuinely in Christ and, and may, may be thinking about the fact that, well, I loosely say I'm, a, I'm in Christ. Like, you know, most people say they live in Atlanta, when they live nowhere near it, they just it's a good proximity term, and perhaps some people just throw out there that, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, because of its general identity. Lord, help them to see that uh, to have an identity which is not theirs is a, an expression of mocking. It's to say that I know Christ is sufficient, but it's not, in this, it's not for me, I'm not interested. Lord, have mercy on them, and have mercy on those who would be more clear offenders. Uh, they're in one sense, uh, they are who we will contend with, and yet in another, they're not our enemy in terms of a personal nature, but it is personal because we love your church. Lord, would you help us to, to, to weigh through and wrestle through that well and to contend for the faith in a way that pleases you, and we recognize again that that includes remembering. So Lord, give us the grace to hear, to think, and to remember in a way that pleases you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.